so yeah, there's, there's probably got to be a certain bit of luck, and I guess you've just got to get the right people and to be helping you and stuff because you probably could easily get shafted if you had the wrong sort of people advising you or helping you. If you kind of chuck in 20 grand of your own in, though, it gives it some sort of credibility to think, well, they're putting their money in, so I think that does help the process of funding. Yeah, all of a sudden people say, right, they're not just trying to do it on a whim. Yeah, I think if you're just looking to borrow 100% with fuck all, it, you know, there would be a question asked of, well, if it's so good, why wouldn't you put some money yourself? Do you think um, having having the names that you know, you've know you worked under helped a little bit? Because obviously that's yeah. something that's been picked up in the press. 100%. It helps with the loans. It helps with the PR and stuff. Um, definitely. It, it, it does, 100%. And I, I, I hate advertorial restaurant press. I think it looks shit, like running, a, running an advert or whatever. So to get loads of editorial coverage is really important. And I think it's weird, like... When I, when I set up 1884 or whatever, like, I'd still worked for Ramsey and stuff like that, but no one gave a fuck, because I'd never done anything particularly for myself, and so have a million other chefs, you know, and, and, and I'm not fucking on my own in having worked for some decent people. There's a fucking million people who've done it. And we tried to do, like, press releases and stuff, and no one gave a fuck, but then I think because 1884 became, like, better than anyone thought it would, and particularly, like, in, in a town like Hull at the time, which wasn't didn't have city culture and didn't have a lot going on or whatever, I think... Um, now I've done that and that and that sort of got in the Michelin Guide and did really well. And, and working for Gary, I think, massively helped with things like Restaurant Magazine and Caterer and Big Hospitality and stuff like that. I think um, I think that's probably more of a rubber stamp than anything. And it was such a whimsical thing to go and work for Gary as well. Like I didn't, I didn't really, I, I knew Gary through Twitter, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I resigned from 1884 in like May 2015. I thought, I'm going to take a year off. I think I resigned on the Monday and I was bored on the Friday. <laughs> so I got my mate to take me to Chester. I met Gary for a coffee and sticky and I basically offered myself a job, but in like a non-arrogant way, which I think is what Gary really liked. I just kind of said, look, um, I know you're opening Burn. I know you've got a head chef in one go and they just want someone to get hand. And originally it was kind of like for a month or whatever but because where the restaurant was which I also similarly didn't know I had no idea where Heswell was I just assumed it was like near sticky and I basically could see whales out my fucking bedroom window um, so my missus wants to occupy like considering she lives in East Yorkshire and, and we do now so that was really shit but really good but yeah because of where it was and stuff and how far it was I ended up sort of saying well look I'm going to have to come for six months and get an apartment or whatever because coming for a month's just not going to work by the time I've got that it'll be like time to go home to be fair, it nearly even worked like that. Anyway, I think the, from the last box of my stuff got there and then I left a week later. But it, it was really good and I, I really enjoyed it. And to be fair, if it had been closer and, and my missus had been closer, I would have stayed. But also similarly, I went there knowing it was short term. I, I, wanted, I left 1884 knowing I wanted to set up my own restaurant. And I, you know, if I'd have, if I'd have stayed there, it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have been doing what I'm doing yeah. now. And to be honest, like seeing how... Because Gary just decides he's opening a restaurant and then does it and then figures it out later. And to be fair, seeing that and seeing sort of how he just pushes through every challenge and stuff made me sort of think, well, there's no reason I can't sort of do this with a little bit of my own money, a little bit of my best mate's money, a little bit of my missus' money, and then a little bit of loans and, you know, that kind of shit. Hello, it's Paul from The Past Podcast. I just wanted to say a massive thank you for downloading this. There's more to come, so please subscribe. This podcast is brought to you in line with Great British Chefs. It's a fantastic website that I'm a member of. It brings you recipes, tips, and there's loads of features. In fact, if you think two of my guests this year have been on the Great British menu, they've got a fantastic feature going along with that this year, and you can get involved and take quizzes. One of the things I didn't know is they have a fantastic recipe guide. You can search from ingredients that you've got in stock. Or sometimes what I do is just go down to the market, buy one ingredient, and then you can look online and see what goes with it. And now, it's time for this week's podcast. On with the show. Welcome to the Past Podcast. My guest today is James Alcock. If past experience can be a sign of taste, then my guest today surely must have the best. Having worked for Gordon Ramsay, Marcus Waring, Alan Williams, James Nappett and Gary Usher, who we've just spoken about, he's now, it seems, ready to take a step in the spotlight himself. Return to his native Yorkshire to open what he describes to be a pint-sized neighbourhood bistro. I suspect it might be a little bit more than that. 
So thank you for your time today, mate. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's really good to see you. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to see you. It's great coming into a town like Beverly, and as an outsider who's not been in before, you actually see that there is quite a bustling restaurant scene already. Yeah, it's great. It's um, there's a really nice uh, independent scene of a, a handful of really good, credible operators. So I think I should hopefully slot in amongst that quite well. Was that something that gave you confidence coming to do what? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of people sort of, you know, I appreciate you don't know but a lot of people sort of say there's too many restaurants in Beverly, and I think there was a lot of places to eat, but I think if you look at where I sort of sit and you look at the independence and you remove sort of the chains, I think there'll be a gap, and that definitely gives me the confidence that, you know, also this, this is a small restaurant, so I only need to sort of pick up a small percentage of the market to be happy, and I think that that will complement the area nicely. So I've given you quite a grand introduction there, yeah. um, and you've worked in some pretty grand places. Yeah, I've been I've been fortunate that I sort of um, I realised from an early age. I mean, I, I grew up around here in a little village called Cottingham, and at the time there was no restaurants around here. You know, I was kind of like I'd worked in a couple of hotels and stuff that were okay, and I was kind of eighteen, and I thought I could see chefs in the kitchens who just worked locally all their life, and I just thought I don't want to do this. I want to work somewhere credible. So I just on a whim emailed restaurant Gordon Ramsay and sort of said look you know here's my CV can I apply what's the situation I got a phone call back did a two day into a head office and it sort of changed from there really it's the first time I moved out of home first time I'd you know it was only the second time I've been to London when I moved there um, and I think it's the best thing I ever did really as much as I needed the year I sort of got to work in that kitchen when there was the names you've just touched on all coming through it and I think it was um as much as I knew it would be at the time, I think looking back, it was bigger than I ever thought it would be really, and it was the, the best thing I did, certainly. One of the things that interests me, I want to kind of talk about how you got set up in London in a minute, but one of the things that interests me is, I don't want to go over all these chefs too much because this is about you, but I was interested in if you've decided now that then Michelin stars, it's not for you. I've got a lot of respect for Michelin stars and Michelin as a whole and the chefs that work and operate in that environment and I think you know and I love eating out in Michelin star restaurants but I don't think it is me I don't think it's the food that I want to cook um I don't even think it's the restaurants I want to work in I love eating in them but I just I, I, I don't want to ever feel like I'm in a position where I wouldn't put something on my menu because I thought it wasn't Michelin sort of ready if you like and I don't want to operate in that way if I you know, if, if I want to serve something ridiculously simple because I think it's really nice, I don't want to... I think it puts a lot of... I think it puts as many restrictions as it does benefits to, and I just don't want to operate in that way. And I think, um, I, particularly with what I'm operating now and stuff and about to open, I, I want to have somewhere really accessible where I just think you've got that flexibility and you can just sort of serve something really simple. Was there a turning point then? Was there a light bulb moment? It was all I ever wanted when I was... When I started out, I thought it was just like, I've got to work in Michelin Star Kitchens, I've got to work for big names. And I think, I don't know, I just think as I got older and more confident with cooking, that you kind of don't, when you, it's like an artist never knows stop, to stop how to paint sometimes, isn't it, when things are overcomplicated. And I just think when you're a young chef, you kind of want that. You, and and I, I, I'm not sort of dumbing it down, but it isn't me. I don't. You know, I don't know how to do molecular as well for that side of the, that business, and I don't want to know. It's not me. I'd rather just put, a, a, you know, there's nothing wrong with just some simple poached fruit and some great, you know, mascarpone cheese, but it's not It's not really being a chef, is it? It's just buying some really good fruit. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I don't see anything wrong with that, but I, I don't want to kind of be in that environment. I think as I've got older, I've got more confident, and I've worked with other people who, who you see that there is as much... I think there's as much skill in simplicity as there is in something that's amazing. And I don't want to do that kind of style of food anymore for me. Something that I touched upon with my last guest was about the experience, though, that it gives you. And I wondered if there was anything that you learned in that time that you still use, even maybe when you're cooking at home or in the restaurant. Don't get me wrong, there's tons. Yeah, absolutely tons. I mean, I, I'm always shocked by how relevant everything I did at Ramsey still is today. And that shows how good he was 12 years ago which it will be maybe more when I was there which one makes me feel really fucking old and, <laughs> and, and, yeah you don't look it mate you look fine yeah. Uh, but yeah I, I do there's tons of stuff I mean there's loads of recipes that I've still got that I still treasure that are still relevant that I still use and just techniques and just I, don't get me wrong as much as I don't want to work in Michelin kitchens with 35 chefs or whatever 
that the organisation of it is second to none. And I would do that whether I opened a cafe, a bistro, a restaurant with 100 staff and 1,000 customers. I would do that whatever I did. So that credibility and that quality and that well-regimented operational level, I'll always take with me um, and discipline for sort of, you know, making sure everything's correct, whether it is something simple or whether it's something with 27 things on the plate. Yeah. Is it something about having freedom that you like? Yeah, I, I like the flexibility. And, and with the new venture I'm doing, it's all day dining and, you know, it's small plates, so you could come in and just have a starter or you could come in and spend four hours grazing. And I like that flexibility. I don't want to... Yeah, I, don't, I want to run somewhere that I'd want to go and eat on a Wednesday, not, you know, save up 500 quid and then go and eat once every three years. You know, I want to, eat, I want to have somewhere where it's a neighbourhood place that you could eat twice a week and have completely different experiences. You could sit at the bar, have a small plate and go, or a chocolate mousse and a coffee and, and go, or you could come book and, and eat all day. And I think that that having that ability to not feel restricted by anything is great for me and the area. So what I was interested in when I was reading through your menu, it certainly reads as you've got influences from what you're doing now. Obviously, then you go over your past, which is great. And I love the one that we're going to come on to in a little while, which is about your family. Where do you take most influence from? I certainly didn't grow up eating bad food or rubbish food. My mum was a great cook or chef, whatever you want to call it. We just ate really well. You know, we didn't we didn't really eat processed food and, and that's not through snobbery or whatever. We just didn't. You know, we ate really good homemade food, whether that's a, a lasagna or a moussaka or, or whatever. And I think um, having that ability to have eaten well but not posh as a, as a kid sort of really meant that it wasn't a shock you know I, I worked with a a kid um 20 year old lad and he sort of started late being a chef if you like but he'd never eaten spinach and I just think <laughs> you know he'd never eaten spinach he'd never eaten so many things and it was like how the hell is he supposed to know what it tastes like he was never eating it and it was it was a barrier to sort of say look you know whether you like it or not you're gonna to have to eat these things and the, otherwise you're going to be really not a very good chef you know and luckily he's still in the industry and he, he's now eating spinach and he, he's, he <laughs> he's his green and I've just got him a, 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 another job somewhere else so you know he's, uh, like he's a good lad. well he, I kind of took him under my wing a bit and he was sort of like a bit of a, a lost lamb and uh, I quite like the fact that he's still um, in the industry and I mean there's, there's quite a few people who I've worked with who I've maintained contact with and things and, and it's really nice and in fact, an, an apprentice who worked for me at 1884 contacted me literally last week saying he's uh, leaving 1884 and he's going to work for Tommy Banks at Black Swan. So that. that was just like the most amazing thing to get ever. It's like, it is like seeing, you know, one of your kids go off to university almost, isn't it? You know, you think, <laughs> Graduate from the school yeah, of chefs. it's an amazing feeling. So um, I encourage all the people I've worked with to go and work for other people who are much better than me because, you know, there's, there's plenty of them out there. What about them? You've already mentioned that there's a few existing restaurants in Beverly. Have you got a competitive nature? I absolutely have. I mean, I, yeah, irrespective of being a chef, I probably would be quite competitive. But I think that I've also got enough about myself to create somewhere individual, you know. How did you go about then creating the vision that you've got to now? If I'm honest, it originally was born out of the fact that well one I really enjoy eating this type of food that I'm going to be serving and two as much as that might not run true now I, I thought it was probably the cheapest restaurant I could set up and I don't want to dumb that down but that's genuine you know me and my mate went for a beer and we thought you know can we set a restaurant up for 30 grand and because of the fact that the majority of it's cured meats and things it doesn't need a huge commercial kitchen so it kind of was born from that and spiralled really and because of I think the creativity I've got on things it will push the concept forward. But um, yeah, it was it was as much, everything we've done straddles this line of like born out of necessity, born out of a good idea, and born out of what I, what I want to do. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's absolutely a place that I would really want to eat. And I, yeah, I wish it did cost thirty grand that we thought it was. <laughs> there are 100, 110 now, but yeah, I still think relatively speaking in restaurant terms, you know, um, that's that's pretty low. And uh, but I'm lucky that I've got sort of a really good group of people that I know in the industry that have sort of helped and based on and borrowed from. So I think it'll feel like a really nice place to go out and eat. Obviously, some of the people that I've 
met so far there's obviously a slightly different stages to you and one of the things that I wondered ahead of today's meeting was if in building this restaurant and coming up with the idea you've given yourself room to progress the vision already or is it very much like let's get this established and then see what happens I don't want to get ahead of myself I mean someone said you know where do you want to be at Christmas and where do you want to be next year and I said not in Smalls Claims Court going bust you know which <laughs> I, I genuinely fucking meant but you know they looked at me like I was stupid I'd be lying if I said I wasn't ambitious, you know, I would, I, I can see myself going one or two ways really, I would love to either open more of the same concepts in other market towns, because I think there's room for it, alternatively I, would, I think where my skill lies, as much as my past has sort of been a bit Michelin, a bit fine dining, whatever that means, I think that I see myself doing these little niche restaurants, so kind of 25, 35 covers, and the next one might be a really good steak restaurant but it's very limited, it's just great steak, and that's it. And, and the next one might be a fish restaurant, but like fish and chips, really simple, but really ace, but oysters, scallops, that kind of thing. And I think that's where my niche lies, in these small, independent, single kind of dish or area restaurants. And got your partner sneaking in the background. I wonder how she's felt living with you. I think... Yeah, it's probably been quite difficult. Um, <laughs> She's not in. One, because I've sort of been working on this project for nearly a year, so I've been out of the kitchen, which I've realised as well makes me fucking miserable. <laughs> and I really enjoy and need to be in that environment with chefs and just because normal people aren't like chefs and, you know. Well, chefs aren't like normal people. Which yeah, way probably, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's I mean, that way, isn't it? Probably that way, yeah. But, <laughs> So, yeah, I think um, it's made me realise how much I sort of need to be in that environment and want to be in that environment to sort of... It's part of who I am, kind of completes who I am. So I, I felt very much without an identity, without an establishment. Not in, like, a cocky fucking way that I think I'm going to take over the world or whatever, but I need to have that in my life to give me that structure and things. Do you have trouble sitting still? Yeah, I need to be occupied. But the problem is, is like I, I'm like a ferret. I can't stay occupied on one thing for more than about three seconds. So <laughs> it's, uh, you've got you, you've got some credibility with yourself that you've managed to keep you still for ten minutes. So. It's all right. If you get bored at any point, yeah. you can wander around and stretch your legs. Yeah. Just come back to the mic when yeah. you're ready to talk. I appreciate it. How did you go about setting a menu then that is going to be fixed and is going to be sat there in place and it's going to be your menu? I mean, the thing is with like an opening menu is you've got longer than any other menu you have to write it, haven't you? You've got, you know, I've had a year to write it, so you can take upon things you've eaten before, you can take upon things that you, you enjoy eating and cooking, and I think it's, the menu's been easy to write because ultimately a big portion of what you're going to eat when you come to the restaurant is, is great charcuterie and cured meats, which just relies on suppliers and, and artisan producers, and luckily the there seems to be this big British charcuterie movement that's sort of just started in the last three to six months that, that I seem to have sort of been on the right side of, if you like, and, and can ride that wave, and there's been a lot of national PR about it. So as much as we will have loads of Spanish ham and things like that, there'll also be a lot of the salamis are English. So I think in knowing great suppliers that I've always made myself really passionate about dealing direct with suppliers, that's done a huge part of it. And then... The small plates, I'm just sort of drawing on things I've eaten before. You know, the first dish on my menu, that on, on my menu that I've given you, it'll probably be on the menu. And that the story that backs it up it, is, is evocative for me. And because it's such a small restaurant, I hope I can pass that on to the team because, you know, there's yeah. a handful of waiters. So you'd like to think that it'll, I'll be influential enough to sort of rub off on them. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about your first dish. So yeah. tell me the name of the dish and tell so, me the story behind I mean, it's, it. It's quite simple, but it's sort of quite extravagant as well. It's uh, it's, it's just a burrata tomato and lamb's lettuce salad, but it was covered in Italian black summer truffle. And, and I, I had this on big platters sat in a winery uh, at my mate's wedding in Italy. And it was just the most amazing dish. You know, OK, it's it's covered in truffle, so that helps and it's luxury. <laughs> but in reality, it's three things on the plate and it's quite simple. But it was just amazing. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I reckon that dish would be amazing wherever you ate it, but I think you'd struggle to eat it in a better location. And that restaurant's just great. They they do the most amazing steaks, just these huge bistecca florentini that are just massive, and they cook over 
wood fire on these amazing charcoals and all the chefs are smoking in the kitchen that they don't you know they don't <laughs> shit. but it's a, it's a cool restaurant and it's just you know it was just an amazing setting it's like the godfather dinners with big grand tables and stuff it was pretty cool um so that helps but it's it's a great dish nonetheless is there something around that about the sort of sharing element as well yeah 100 percent. i mean it, it the thing is we're more used to this now because we've been to everyone's been to Italy, been to Spain. They've had these sharing boards and these things, and I like that. It's so convivial, and it it, it makes it better. You know, I went to this uh, went to this restaurant in Paris recently that's similar to what I want to do, but maybe they they do slightly more hot food than I will. But and they only give you one menu, and it's so that you kind of talk with your guests. And I thought it was really weird at start, but it's not. It's really nice because you're kind of talking about what you're going to order and what your partner's going to order or what your mate's going to order. And, you know, you have a better experience for it rather than just sort of... Because restaurants fall into menu silence. It's minging. You get everyone gets given a menu, and then the table stops enjoying yeah. themselves. It's just so when they weird. get those great big ones, yeah. it's like up in front yeah, of your face like a newspaper. And, and then it's so weird. You've gone out with your family for your birthday or it's a really nice time, and then you get given an you know an A3 piece of paper, and you no one talks to each other anymore. <laughs> it doesn't really work. So um, yeah, I've adopted that for the restaurant in Beverly um, because of that, and um, I think it's such a lovely thing to sort of talk about what you can order, and it's part of it. You know, me and my friends when we go out, we all do it and talk about what we're going to have and talk about what we're having while we're having it, and then after we've had it, what we'll talk about it again. Yeah. And that's part of it, and, and sharing and getting involved and. You know, can you pass me a bit of that? Can you pass me? Have you tried this? That's the you know I enjoy. How much of your life is consumed about thinking of food? A pretty large portion. I'm uh, I'm lucky because I I still enjoy it. You know, I look at a lot of people and I think, do you really still do you really enjoy what you do in any industry, not just the food industry? But I love what I do. I love eating out at other people's restaurants, and I love cooking at home still, and I love cooking in the restaurant still. And it pretty much is. We sort of do this really sad meal plan thing at home where we're like plan what we're going to eat plan what we're going to cook plan when we're going to go out and stuff but it's something to look forward to it's yeah. nice and, you know breaking bread and talking about your day with your partner or your friends and stuff it's it's important when you go out are you able to shut off from being a chef or yeah. is your I, I don't judge anything in a restaurant i don't i couldn't i i know how hard it is i don't give a fuck if something's wrong or whatever because i know that stuff does go wrong it's a human industry I'm the easiest person to look after in the restaurant. I'm the least, most critical person. And I really enjoy it. I love eating out in restaurants. Um, so there's a great restaurant in the, in the area that I worked at and was sous chef at for two and a half years, the Westwood. And that's like five minutes from my house and we eat it there all the time. And I love it. It's great. It's been there for 10 years. It's constantly developing. It's just got a Michelin guide. It's a really cool restaurant. And I go there, switch off order whatever I want to eat and I just love it and it's always faultless there so that helps but even if it wasn't I'm the easiest person to please in restaurants. Is it more about finding inspiration than finding fault maybe for yourself? <sighs> yeah maybe I suppose I don't know I think there's as much inspiration for me out of old fashioned things of just that what grows together goes together kind of adage and from walking around markets and stuff like that I know it sounds a bit Rick Stein and naff like I'm going to read some poetry to you but it, it is <laughs> Please you know, do. It, 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 it is that's what inspires me I think eating out for me is more about people I would have as good experience having a fry up for two quid as I would eating at the Ritz because I'd know I'd be with my missus or my mates and I would have a great experience and it doesn't really matter it obviously helps for us at the Ritz but it doesn't really matter I could be anywhere and as long as I've got a table of good people I'll have a great time alternatively and oddly some people find that I really enjoy eating out on my own and that's when I would be more looking at the food because a short read in Twitter or whatever there's nothing else you can do you can't. yeah um, so I like eating out on my own and that's when I would through no sort of conscious decision that's when I know I will look at things in a bit more depth and think you know this is really cool this goes together this would be nice with this or whatever that, that's when I sort of get a bit more analytical but yeah something um, I wanted to ask you about is obviously you're just about to open this restaurant and all of a sudden then time's not going to be of the element yeah. I know it probably hasn't been getting it open, but are you ready now to have this place and it's 100% you going to be there, you know, probably the large amount of the time, especially when it gets open? And... Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think, if anything, I think it's going to be a rest compared to setting it up because, I mean, as much as, you know, we've we've got professional shop fitters and things doing everything and, and, and we've got a great team of people around us who are helping us do it and um, we've sort of tried to do as much we can ourselves in terms of sort of saving a bit of money so I think because that's not what I do for a living you know I don't 
paints or refit restaurants. That's not what I do. I'm a chef. So I think that's more tiring on your brain and physically. I think when we come to open, and we're open seven days a week, which I kind of, I feel like I set myself up for something quite difficult there. <laughs> but um, I think it's going to be a break. And I, I don't want to make that sound like I'm going to be tossing it off or whatever, but I think it will be. And I think because it's what I do and, it's, and, and because I've... Now, I wrote this menu like a year ago. I just can't wait to get cooking it. And there's only so many times you can make it for your friends and family before they turn into a Parma ham. So <laughs> it'd be nice to do it for some customers. So I've been sitting and looking at your menu online. I'm ready for it. Yeah. Do you imagine your dish in your head and salivate? Or is it something now that you're a little bit far removed from? No, I just can't wait to, to get cooking. And, you know, I think next wednesday so like three or four days from now we've got the staff menu training i can't wait to do that with the team and i'm excited about it i don't think i'm by any means past it or, or fed up but i'm just really excited and it's getting to that good bit now where deliveries are starting to come you know the kitchen's in the team are starting and it's getting to the bit i feel like i, I think i know how to do a bit better than the other bit yeah so what's going to be your motto with the team are you going to install some sort of ethos in them or i mean i want i want it just i, I think in terms of the team and stuff like that i think I've worked in conflicting environments and I've run conflicting establishments myself before. And I think in terms of how I want the staff to be is I, I want to emulate what I felt like as a member of the team at, at Burnt Truffle with Gary and Sticky. And he really looks after his guys, but they know what's required. And I think I just want it to be like a, uh, you know, it's a professional establishment and it's got to be right. It's a small team. I want everyone to get on and I don't want to be, I just want everyone to, to know what they're doing and it'd be a really nice place to work and a great place for guests to come where the team know you by the name and, you know, people could come two or three days a week. So I think it's just going to be, it sounds naff, but it's like that old fashioned family restaurant, isn't it? You know, where, you know, mum or dad's in the kitchen and one, the other one's out front or whatever and the, you know, the son's on the pot wash or whatever. It's that kind of place, but with that overriding professionalism of the places I've worked in historically. With everything new, there is always an element of resistance. You're obviously going to have people that go, I can't wait for this, I'm going to try it, I'm going to book it up, and then there is also going to be a negative camp. How much of that have you found? Yeah, I mean, you've seen the highs and lows of of setting the restaurant yourself first-hand and been at the other end of a tweet sort of pushing me on. A lot of times so we've we've had a lot of negativity but i think that was when it was fear of the unknown i think now the people have realized who we are who's behind the restaurant how credible it is that it's all become quite supportive now and, and everyone seems to be behind us and looking forward to us opening so it's a nice um it's a nice feeling it, it's not going to be for everyone it's quite a niche restaurant it ultimately you know it, it'd be a great restaurant for vegetarians but ultimately, it isn't going to suit vegans because it's cheese, kid me, and it just, it's just not going to work. And that's not me being exclusive or sort of pushing people out the door. It's just reality. But it's a small restaurant, so it can get away with that. If it was a 100-cover restaurant or whatever, I'd want, it to, I'd want to feel like it needed to be more flexible. But ultimately, it's a niche restaurant, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I think it's, you know, I think it's been well-received. I think people get it. I think... People eat a lot more of this kind of stuff at home as well now. They've been on holidays to Spain, Italy, and, and they know how they know what the score is. So I don't think it's as much of a shock and as much different as, as we maybe would have been ten years ago. Are you fundamentally a people pleaser? Uh, I don't think my missus would say that. But, um, <laughs> She's gone away now, I, so uh, you can you can uh, talk stress free. I've always cooked for customers and cooked for guests and in doing that I've cooked what I would want to go out and eat as a guest I'm not like an egotistical chef that I cook something really wanky and Chuck Norris serves you a soup in a hot air balloon or whatever if it's, just, <laughs> if it's a soup it's in a fucking bowl and it's got some bread with it but it'll be nice and it'll be the best soup so, are you sure that can't be an idea yeah. for opening night <laughs> but you know I think and because of that I think the restaurants I've been involved with have always been popular and well received because they're I always have this thing where I kind of want people to understand the menu or at least understand an ingredient or some familiarity in a dish because if they don't, it doesn't. what's enjoyable about having someone spend three hours stood next to you explain what you're about to eat? I think it's bollocks. I just want to eat it and I want to understand what it is. And I think if there's parts of the dish or parts of the menu that guests are familiar with and understand, it gives them confidence to try the whole dish or the whole experience. Because of that, I think people it will become that neighbourhood restaurant yeah. because it's got that sort of straddling that line of familiarity and unfamiliar. Yeah. 
So something you've alluded to is that yourself and I kind of got to know each other through Twitter. Yeah. You also mentioned before that you got to know Gary over Twitter. It seems to me like you're a very good person at building up relationships. Yeah, I guess it must be, yeah. I've never really thought about it, if I'm honest. But I think um, social media is great because you can access anyone, whether they reply or not. It's a different thing, but, you know, if you can... I think Gary My and I, approach is just tweet, 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 yeah. tweet, tweet, and then they'll get fed up eventually. <laughs> I think Gary and I probably be, became friends through social media and, and colleagues and, and still friends today because we sort of both have this similar thing of sort of venting through it and it wasn't for like a reaction. I forget people read it. Sometimes like I see people literally in the street, like people I sort of vaguely know and they'll be like, oh, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, but you had a meltdown last night. I'm like, yeah. And I forget people read it and I probably, I probably shouldn't because... I quite like your meltdowns on Twitter, they're hilarious. Uh, I don't feel hard. No, you haven't. Clean up on again, so... But this is the thing, though. I think people think it's like a... It's it's not for a reaction, it's real. It's like my life. That's why I enjoy it. I can tell it's real. And and I think, um, yeah, there's probably better ways than nailing a bottle of Chablis and then blasting out a thousand tweets, you know, putting your heart (laughs) on a seal in your sleeve or in a tweet. But, yeah, I think it just works for me and... uh, um, it has, you're right, it's built up a group of friends or colleagues or whatever in the industry, and it's good. It can only be a positive thing as well for sharing information and recipes and ideas and stuff like that. It's, um, it's great. And it's great from a, I mean, I don't do it in like a, in, in a, in a wanky way, like, oh, come now, the terrace is baking, come and have a glass of wine, we're open, because I think that's shit. But I think it's a great way of marketing your restaurant in, a, in just a, this is what's going on, just photographing the team, photographing dishes, photographing whatever's going on in the restaurant. I think can't be a more direct way of sort of accessing your customers and that's that's ace and it's it's free and it's direct and it's for food it works because food photography and stuff on on your iphone or whatever all you need is a chrome filter and it looks like you've got two stars so <laughs> you're kind of in the mix aren't you do you have a business person's head on you yeah i mean I'm, you can't just be a, a chef anymore and i'm not a businessman but i i'd like to think hopefully I've got a decent grasp on that side of stuff. I suppose it'd be a better conversation to have in a year's time because if I go bust by fucking Christmas, I'll sound like a wanker if I say I'm really good at business. <laughs> but um, I, I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay at that kind of stuff. I think uh, I'm not afraid to sort of just get stuck in with anything that I don't know. I don't sort of shirk away from it and I make sure I surround myself with people that if I don't know the question, whether it's to do with food, the accounts or the lease or whatever I'll, I, I'd like to think that I also know who to ask and, and, and I, I'm not afraid of asking people for help or advice or whatever so I think between sort of half bumbling, half guessing, half knowing, I think I'll be okay Because something like that I've been obviously doing now getting this set up is I've made my Twitter 100% the past now yeah. and it's all kind of about chefs and I follow chefs and then the other day I was sort of mucking around with work and tweeting silly pictures and then I thought oh, actually this is going up on my past yeah. page is that something that you think about you know the identities of your different because it feels to me like when I'm looking at your Twitter sorry I'll let you talk yeah. in a second yeah. I'm looking at you and I get to know about you the person and then I follow your pig and whistle page and it's very well done and looks really you know well operated and yeah I'm mindful that I want to keep the restaurant side professional I think I just I guess it depends on how you want to operate I mean I'm I keep my my personal one is my personal one and I think the if people want to follow both that's fine but they're going to get a conflicting thing you know and I yeah I've by no means got a, a, a media and PR company running the Pig and Whistle Twitter, but I, I certainly wouldn't sort of put some of the stuff that I put on my my personal one there. Not not through a conscious decision or because I think it's wrong to do that. Um, I just um, I think that's just the way I've I've chosen to do it. And um, yeah, at least at least I can clearly filter in my head where yeah where ideas going to go. Yeah, and I, I quite like things in little. I think it's worked really well. Again, yeah. I wouldn't have been able, I feel, to get to know yourself or your business as well. Yeah. So you must be pretty pleased with how it's going so far. Yeah, I think so. It's quite overwhelming, really, because like um, you know, people like yourself get in touch with something like this is really great, and I really appreciate it. But you know, we've had loads of support from from all over, and I guess that touched on that before. That's what social media can do for you, and that you know, the, the PR. I've not got like a big PR team or whatever. I'm doing a lot of the marketing or all of the marketing myself. And I think um, it's been overwhelming that we've been in sort of big hospitality, top five stories of the week, restaurant, magazine, caterer, all these things are kind of, you know, 
talking about a little bistro where I've you know, borrowed some money off my mate and my missus and originally it was going to be like a small little thing and now it seems to be this really, almost seems like credible before it even exists. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, it's great, but it's, um, and it can only help, obviously, but I can't quite believe it really because when, I'd, when I've done things before, I've been involved in things, we've sort of tried to do press releases and they kind of go out in a couple of local rags and that's it and that's great, but you know, you can't beat sort of national and industry stuff. It's a great rubber stamp. So I think um, I've probably got Gary as much as anyone to thank for that because he's sort of in these circles quite regularly because he's a likeable guy and people enjoy what he does. And, you know, as much as it's like, I hate that kind of what's hot, what's not shit, but he, he is red hot in the industry at the minute and everything he touches seems to be ace and, and out there. And I think probably because of that it sort of opens those doors I guess as much as the Ramsey thing helps obviously but you know we touched on this before the interview that was 12 years ago and there's a million other people who've worked yeah. from you know so you kind of send especially like, oh did you know I worked here so what fucking so so the million people yeah, yeah. so I think but when you add that to 1884 Credible did well Gary I think when as a package yeah. and then with the restaurant now it's an interesting angle it's it's English charcuterie it's small it's cool it's independent so I think as a group it seems to have just culminated in this really cool thing that people pick up on and, and that's through no sort of design that's just it's great I can only be thankful and positive about it really So your second dish touches upon your time with Gordon Ramsay and Marcus Waring Yeah Perhaps you could tell me about it So it's um, it's a curried uh, scallops with cauliflower puree and tomato and vanilla chutney and when I when I started working there this tomato and vanilla chutney was just such a fucking ball like it but it was ace it was the greatest recipe I've ever made it had this ingredient list that just looked like Macaulay Culkin's shopping list it was, <laughs> it was like stuff that had no right to go together like fucking fish sauce lime tarragon and it was just to me it was so alien it was so alien as a recipe I just had no idea what it would taste like and I also couldn't make it for the in life for me but could in the end luckily but yeah it was just great and it was just just so tasty and interesting and any time I've ever made it since it still blows me away from a product with fish and scallops and things like that it's just delicious so like you said before you knew that you wanted to go down into London so just fast forward me slightly when you're in the kitchen on your first shift and someone like Marcus Waring or Gordon Ramsay walks in I mean I was really fortunate because Gordon was there on my trial and was there once a week, whereas in I imagine you wouldn't see him for dust in the UK nowadays, which is fine. He's, he's big on a worldwide scale now, but I think to have that FaceTime and that direct contact with someone like Gordon Ramsay 12 years ago, once a week, is just crazy. But I couldn't believe how big he was. And, like, I'm not small. I'm six foot three, which I found out the other day, even though I thought I was six two my entire life. And he's like just he's fucking huge and doesn't come across until he's got a size fifteen feet and I've got size thirteen feet, so I'm not small. But he just he's a huge man and, and he's just a presence and yeah, it it wasn't an easy kitchen to work in. I mean, it wasn't. You know, I was the youngest out of like twenty seven chefs. I felt physically sick and was sick when I first met him. I was so scared. Because I'd worked nowhere, I'd done nothing. I'd worked in like a little French bistro in my hometown that was tiny husband and wife thing and it was fine but it, it wasn't incredible and I'd worked in like a local hotel which was fine and I don't want to dumb it down but it wasn't anything like this and, and the precision and at that level just was overwhelming and to be the youngest guy in the kitchen was overwhelming I mean I, I was nicknamed Leeds and I'm not even from Leeds but it was just because <laughs> from the north so that was all I was called no one told me that was what I was called I just used to hear someone shouting Leeds and then realised it was me so I had to sort of answer but yeah, it was, I can't credit that time enough. It's still, it still, it opens doors now. It's still that rubber stamp that no one can take away from me. And I still use everything I learned more than I realised I would when I was learning it. Mainly just that organisational discipline and just how to cook, you know, how to taste, season, how to make food. You know, it was the, it was the biggest year and apprenticeship I could do. What was it about this dish, about, you know, amongst the many that you probably learned while you were there that stood out to you to put it on your menu? I mean, I, I kind of found it. Re I found it really enjoyable to write this menu for you, and I also found it really hard because I, I couldn't step away from not writing it as a menu that I would eat, even though I'm never going to fucking eat this menu. I've not made it. That's not part of it. It's just. But I had to write it in my head as an anal chef, where it would eat well as a menu. So I, I had to change things. But 
I think it was just the fact that there was this recipe that I couldn't make that I then could and that I still make now and love it and it's it's probably yeah it's just it's, food is really evocative isn't it and I think if I was to eat that now I would just be back on the veg section getting bollocked for making it wrong and then I would also in the same breath be thinking about the first time I made it correctly so it's it's that thing and it's just the flavours are just great it's a cracking dish and it's and it's quite simple to be fair if you take away the complexity of the chutney it's three things on the plate essentially have you been back to any of these restaurants that you've worked you know I see on your page quite a lot you do go back to a lot of Gary's restaurants but yeah. have you been to any you know Petrus again or, or somewhere you know that one of your I haven't actually but I would love to and I probably should but uh yeah, I, I mean, I do eat out quite a lot. I, and like you said, I eat at Gary's places, considering they're quite far away, quite quite a lot. And I'm sure if they were closer, I'd, I'd be there every week. <laughs> Propping up uh, the bar. Yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't actually, but I, I probably should. Obviously, what I do like, and you, you've just said it, is that you have treated this like a menu. I could tell that when it came through. And what I loved was that you kind of took a, a pause maybe from your life as a chef and opening up the restaurant for your third dish to talk about your family yeah and you've also mentioned that you've got this foodie family is it something that you still go out and eat and will they be in your restaurant yeah. do you think and yeah 100% but I think um, and I don't think anyone would sort of take offence to this but I don't think we would be as much of a foodie family if I hadn't been a chef you know my family always ate out and we always ate well but my whole family like an extended family and my missus's family we all eat out at these amazing restaurants now and I think that I never would have made this connection but my mum said it the other day she said look I don't think as a family we would have done this I don't think we would have gone to Michelin star restaurants and my mum at a fucking chef's table you know I don't think she ever would have done that just not through just through not thinking about it I don't think we would have ever done that I think um, so I think that's what was really touching when my mum said that so yeah but but we do all eat out and we really enjoy it, you know. We had Mother's Day at, at Tommy's place at Black Swan Ulster and uh, that was just amazing. The private dining room was fantastic, looked after us really well and, yeah, it was just such a nice thing to do. So before you tell me about this third dish then, with that in mind, where did the idea of being a chef come from? My first girlfriend at school, her stepdad said to me, why don't you be a chef? And the back to that is that I left I left school, went to college, went to do IT, because well, I got kicked out of school for hacking into school's computer in terms of my attendance <laughs> record, but that's another story. Uh, and I, went, I wanted to do IT, but then when I realised that IT wasn't hacking into computers, it was making a fuck-ass boring spreadsheet of shit. I just thought, this is crap, I can't sit here, these are all nerds. And I was by no means the cool kid, but I wasn't a geek, and I didn't want to sit there with a group of geeks all day so I, I sacked it off and went to work in a clothes shop but I always knew I wanted to do more than that and could do more than that but I was by no means an academic so I enjoyed cooking as a family but never would have thought to be a chef and we enjoyed cooking with my first girlfriend's family and he just said look why don't you be a chef you know we did catering on cruise ships I think years ago in a different life and you know why don't you do that you'd love it and uh, kind of came from there really and Without sounding naff, it was kind of like the Jamie Oliver era, so it just becomes sort of cool. Whereas in catering originally, it was kind of like, well, I don't want to be a hairdresser, so I'll be a chef. And that was what catering college was when, you know, <laughs> 20 years ago. It was literally that decision, right, I'm not clever, what am I going to do, hairdressing, I'll be a chef. And, and it was just cool. So I kind of thought, well, yeah, I could do this. So I went to catering college, got really into it. And like I said, you know, Jamie Oliver was on telly. I even bought a Vespa. Went to Sainsbury, picked up some lemons, as you do, and thought I was really cool. I used to drive it into my house as well, like Jamie Oliver. I had a house in Beverly, three-story townhouse that it just fit in if I took the wing mirror off, but I was determined I wanted to drive my Vespa into my house. So, yeah, I, uh, and that was it, really, and that was the rest, and I just sort of loved it, loved the... Just loved everything about it. I think it's just a great industry to be in. I still love it today. So I've sort of touched on the catering industry in my life. Yeah. Uh, I never did went into catering college, but I wanted, I've, I had this period of time where I thought, right, I'm going to go into it, I'm going to do it. And I went and approached Paris House in Woburn, the Michelin star at the time. I said, look, I'd come as pot wash, and if you can just like teach me to cook. Yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't for me, but what I'm interested in is, um, do you feel like you did it in the right way for going to college? And then, like you say, you went straight no. for all like Michelins. And... I don't, I don't, I don't think there is a right way. I think there's the way for whatever you, for your end result and whatever you want to do. Because the industry is so varied. There's, I think I was lucky because I had a great lecturer and I work really closely with the college still um, 
as part of their like alumni scheme and do a lot of uh, student mentoring and open events and things like that for future past and present students and things. Caring College was really naff when I went, but I was lucky that my lecturer was really good. And Which one did you go to, sort of whole, remind me? Whole How college, old, right, okay. And, and uh, it, was, it was pretty poor, but I was lucky that I had a really good lecturer. And he just said, look, you know, you've done your level two, go and get a job because you're not going to benefit from doing any more here. And I'm not to say that that's not the way for everyone. And I'm not, not, and that's not for me to say that it's not better now at colleges. But at the time, it was really naff. But then I, that's why I now work with them really closely, because I think it's okay saying they're really naff. But if you're going to do fuck all about it, then you're not, yeah. not making any better. Yeah. So that's why I take lots of chefs from the college and I work with them to try and make it better. Because I think had I not had a great lecturer and had I not had this advice to go and get a job, I probably would have liked to stay at college a bit longer and just been pretty run-of-the-mill. But... Yeah, I don't think there's any. There was no sort of like grand plan to go and work at Michelin star restaurants, and that'd be great. I just knew that I had to. At the time, there wasn't credible restaurants in the area, so I just knew that I had to get there. And I, there was just this. I knew I had to get to London. You know, I knew that's what I had to do. And, and I'm not on my own in that. Loads of chefs have done that it, it, because that's what you had to do. Whereas, and I think if you look now, you can get Michelin stars in tiny little villages and all over. Whereas in originally it was just this. You got to go to London to be a chef. Yeah. Whereas you don't need to do that now. You can do it wherever you want. Um, so that was sort of the reason behind that when I set out and did this project before I started coming up with this format the first thing I thought I was going to get a whole lot of on my menus was your next dish because I think everybody's got a good memory of this Well, I nearly didn't put it on because of that but then I thought well that's stupid because it's what I want to put it's what I want to put on and it's what I mean and and, and the dish is um, you know my mum's roast with beef Sunday lunch but we had this really cool but really simple pickle with it that my granddad used to make and it's just it's, it's easy as fuck it's just cucumber white onion and vinegar but it's ace absolutely ace and um, it just works really well with roast beef and again I touched on that evocative thing about the tomato and vanilla chutney or about the burrata and I suppose all these dishes that I've put on are evocative of a place um, or a time and, and I think just sat at my mum's house with my whole family past and present I mean most of them are fucking dead now anyway so it'd all be all be passed apart from my mum and my auntie and stuff and uncle but yeah just having those group of people around was just the, the best time ever and it might not have even been the best Sunday lunch but it was it was good and it was just it was again it's that thing about more about the time more about the place or as much about the time as much about the place when you're coming up with a dish and when you're about to serve it you know you say you've got this you've had this menu in your head for a while so in three four weeks time when the pig and whistles go in what is is there a checklist in your head that says right if it's like this then it can be served what yeah 100 percent. i think that's I'm, I'm so anal in the kitchen but i'm also like able to sort of i don't want to blow my intro, but i think i'm quite a good teaching chef like at, at showing people and stuff and encouraging people and things my missus sort of says, like, you know, I can be, like, really a hothead or whatever, but not in a kitchen. Like, I go the opposite. I'm, like, super fucking quiet, super cool, and I can just... Because I'm so anal and, like, I've got the most ridiculously good memory for food or for stuff, I can just quickly test and check things, and, and I know that it's right, and I, I've got... It's not... I might not sound like Rain Man, but I can. I can see that something's wrong or something's right, and that's probably why I've... I've done quite well at it because I just I am like that when you are doing simple food mm. you notice the things that are out of place a lot quicker than yeah, when you've got this complex and yeah. there's different flavours hiding different things I was just going to say hiding yeah there's, there's nowhere to hide is that you can't hide behind a, and I'm not saying that we were but you can't hide behind a, a really complicated recipe and a, and a chutney that's amazing because there isn't that it's just two or three things on the plate I mean that you know that burrata salad that I touched on that's that's got to be the best burrata, the best tomatoes, the best lamb's lettuce and great truffle because otherwise, it's, it's, because it, that's painted by numbers. A lot of the food at the Pig and Whistle is, I don't want to dumb it down, but it is painted by numbers. It's, it's buying great stuff and knowing how to put them together. And when it is that, it's got to be the greatest tomato, the greatest carrot or whatever, or the freshest herb. It's got to be the best stuff because otherwise, and you, because you've done so little to it, otherwise it's just going to be shit. There's more confidence in simple food than there is in stuff that's got a million things on the plate. And I think uh, when we get to it, I think my fourth dish illustrates how successful, and as much as I've, I've made it out as if I think Michelin food's complicated, I don't think all Michelin food's complicated. I think it was historically. And I think there's a movement of some uncomplicated stuff. But I think that the, the fourth dish I've got illustrates how simple you can be, but it's got to be at the highest level and how successful you can be on that. 
Tell me, talk to me about it then. So, I mean, this makes me sound like such a middle-class fuck, which I'm not. I went through this phase of sort of, when I ran 1884, of we shut for a week in, in January, and I went through this phase of sort of going to Paris on my own as like a bit of a break after Christmas and just wandering the streets and eating at restaurants. And I got there one year with no plans on a Monday night, and uh, and it was, it was through pure chance that I checked into my hotel and sort of tried to pay, and they said, oh, your room's been pre-authorised. And I thought, I didn't have a lot of fucking money in my bank, and it was because they took the money for the room. So I had an extra 400 euros that I never thought I'd have. So I rang all <laughs> the three Michelin star restaurants in Paris and thought, fucking, I'm going to spend this. Okay. So when you find a £5 yeah. note around the back of the sofa. Yeah, yeah. so I thought, because I'd paid for this room on a pre off I thought, right, I'm going to go. And Alan Passard had a, a lonely corner table for one available, so... I went and ate there and had this ridiculous 420 euro tasting menu. I sat down and I thought, fuck, this is lavish. <laughs> peel, it, peel it back on the wine, open the wine list, nothing under 100 euros. I thought, you fucking bastard. <laughs> so I was like, oh, so, you know, it was the most inordinate meal I've ever had on my own, but I just thought, fuck it. And I had this tasting menu that was a real, probably the best meal I've ever had and amazing. Uh, and some of the dishes were ridiculously complicated and the, the stuff he does with veg is awesome. You know, really awesome. To the point where it probably will be the best vegetarian restaurant you go to, but I, I had the taste menu with meat and fish on it as well. And the, the cheese course couldn't have been fucking simpler. Three Michelin-style restaurant, nearly 500 euros a head, and it was just some shaved Comte cheese, but it was the best Comte cheese and loads of black truffle, and that was it. Two things on the plate, both of them bought in, no... You'd have to be a chef to buy some cheese and buy a truffle. That's not that's not cooking. That's just buying two things. You know, anyone can do that. But the fuck was it good? Yeah. And the cheese was just shaved so thinly with the truffle, and you just put it on melts, and it was just beautiful. It was just absolutely beautiful. But yeah, and that's I suppose that's where you think to yourself, well, that's three star fucking you know sixty euro surcharge for some truffle or whatever, and, and simple as, but a, a great dish that I'll never forget. When you're tasting an ingredient that perhaps a supplier sent you, and that you know that obviously they want you to buy them, yeah. what what are you what are you tasting for? Whether I like it, I don't want to find the next wackiest ingredient and think I'm really cool because I've found something that tastes like shit. And I think that's what does matter about foraging. Sometimes I think people who know what they're doing with like sea herbs and wild herbs and foraging and stuff like that are great. But if someone gives me a fucking sea buckthorn again that tastes like stripping the enamel off my teeth and then bomb, <laughs> you know, it's shit. I hate that. It's not trendy, it's not cool, it's just wank. But if you can do it properly, it's great. And I think, ultimately, it's whether I like it. And I don't want to, you know... Why would I want to serve loads of food that I don't like? Because the staff are going to pick up on it. I just serve the food I want to eat, and that's all I want to do. And if I'm tasting something new, it's whether I like it. I don't think, oh, well, it's £50 a kilo more expensive, so it must be cool. I just you know, if, if I want to use a button mushroom, I'll use a button mushroom. But if I want to use a St George's mushroom for £70 a kilo, I will. But it'll be because I like the taste with that dish better. It won't because I think that means I'm, I know what I'm doing or I think, think it's going to be better. I think, you know, that's that's finished, that thing of luxury, you know. I think you can go to Michelin Star restaurants now and, and I think it's better if you do go to one where you don't actually get these massive list of luxury ingredients. You get a braise or something and that shows to me more skill. Anyone can buy truffles and shit. And I know that contradicts what I've just said about my last dish, but... At that restaurant it wasn't done in every course and I think there's more quality in that it, you can buy the best turbot and all these things and that's great but can you can you do it with something a bit cheaper and, you know I had a great dish I didn't make the menu but probably should have done if you did give me a 7 or 10 course option uh, <laughs> I had a great dish my, my mate is a, a one star chef at Isle of Arisca in Scotland and he did a great dish for my 30th birthday when I went and stayed there and it was a pork jowl braised with an inch of its life nearly falling apart with turbot skirt, turbot skirt, nine percent time ends with a bin and pork jowl. Yeah, all right, it's fashionable now, but it wasn't, and it's it's a cheek, you know. And that couldn't have been a better dish, and it couldn't have been more humble, it couldn't have been more simple. I think the most luxury thing on the plate was maybe a lonely spare of asparagus, but you know, pretty pretty simple, but base. <laughs> Something that I've been asking, and that's this is probably a good break in the chat to talk about this, is I've been asking each chef to recommend me some, some more places because yeah. I, I think it's a little bit something. It's great coming from a chef. So is there anywhere you've got on your list which is, right, this is the bucket list of places to eat? That I haven't eaten. Yeah. Well, you can recommend somewhere that you can really be angel evangelical about. But. Yeah. I mean, I've always wanted to eat at 
the fact of kind of not eating there yet. And I particularly want to eat there even more with his sort of relaunch and rebrand, if you like, of what he's doing. I used to work with a chef who said he never wanted to eat at the factor because he was worried it'd be the best meal of his life and he'd never want to eat out again. <laughs> I was, that was such a weird thing, but also quite cool. So yeah, I'd want to eat there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've I've been fortunate enough to because of the industry have some great meals and stuff. I'd, Claude Bose would be quite cool. Now he's took over the Bendham. I've seen lots of flying out of there, and I'd really like to eat there. Yeah. Um, but uh, locality-wise. The best restaurant I've eaten at recently is definitely Black Swan and Oldstead. I love what Tommy does there. I think it's completely individual. I think if you saw any of those dishes, you'd know it was Tommy, you'd know it was Black Swan. And I just think he's the nicest fucking guy ever. And, and he's a babe. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> he's a winner, isn't he? <laughs> he's done all right for himself, hasn't he, through that? It's because he's blue steel face, that's I think. So, yeah. <laughs> How would you feel if someone like a, a Great British Menu or something like that approached you? I did a trial tape for it they asked me to do it three years ago and I think I got down to like the final three and I'm genuinely saying this not because I didn't get through which I didn't because obviously no one's seen Nantelli <laughs> uh, I genuinely didn't know whether I would say yes because I just don't think it's for me I really don't I think it's hard because at the time that was when I worked for someone else as well so I would be doing it and it would gain the restaurant but would it gain me yeah. I think now, I, now I'm about to open my own place if I was asked would I look at it different and think, well, I've got to do it for the business or whatever, but it isn't me. It's just not what I want to do, I don't think. But then you do come across very well, and like yeah. I say, you know, in, here in this interview, you've been a very natural talker and... Yeah, I think, yeah. I probably always haven't been, and I've probably sort of got better at it in forcing myself to do it, but yeah, I just want to, I want to, I want to quietly get on with what I'm doing whilst being successful, and you've got to put yourself out there, haven't you, for, to, to sort of break that barrier of sort of just being locally sort of known and if you can get a bit of national stuff and telly obviously helps and stuff like that but I think I would really I would really prefer just to sort of quietly get on with what I'm doing whilst sort of doing a few bits selectively such as this or such as some some other media stuff and I also don't think I'm a varied enough chef for something like GBM I'm not a pastry chef I couldn't make you a fucking any dessert that would be any better than a lemon <laughs> pasta and that couldn't be any easier so I think I'd struggle with that and I think if it was certain briefs it's like auditioning to the country that you shit as well if you don't do very well <laughs> and, and uh, yeah I think I would struggle and I think there's so much I've got so much respect for some chefs and there's so many better chefs than me that are varied I think where my skill lies is that I just can, I cook for customers and I I cook what I would want to eat and hopefully so far I've found a, sm a small to medium group of people who also want to eat that food so I seem to have done okay. I think to then go on telly and do a, a wide varied brief I think depending on the brief I think I probably would look like a bit of a prick. <laughs> I'm going to take a, a bit of a gamble on the next question yep. because I think I know what your answer is going to be and then I'm hoping it's going to give me a nice segue into your last dish. Right, okay. So of the chefs that you've worked under who's influenced you the most? I guess definitely Gary. I wasn't trying to lead you on there. Yeah, no, well, it, it is because. Do you see the relief coming no, from me? It, it is because ultimately, as much as I only worked from for a short period of time, I worked from a period in my life where I'd kind of just spent four and a half years running a restaurant for someone else, and that restaurant had become really successful. And I resigned, and I had nothing else to do. And I kind of thought, well, I'll take a year off. And I thought, that's not going to work. I'll be really fucking bored. Or I was bored. I resigned on the Monday and I was bored on the Friday. So I think I knew Gary through Twitter, if you can know someone through Twitter. And I kind of went to went to meet him for... I, I In fact, I sent him a message saying, look, uh, where do chefs apply for burnt truffle? And he was like, oh, this email address, uh, who's it for, love? And I put me. And he just sent me this massive message just saying, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? Over and over again. And I was like, look... Ignore that. I don't want to send you my CV. Can I come and have a coffee with you? Because I just thought it's just going to be really weird. How am I going to explain? Not that I think there's anything fucking wrong with me going from what I've done to go and work for Gary, but how am I going to explain why I want to do that and, and how I think it's going to work? So I basically went to Sticky and offered myself a job in a really humble way and sort of said, look, I know you've got one go as a head chef. I don't want to do that. I just want to come and do larder and send some pate. And I knew that I could go and work for him as well because I knew everything would be credible. And I knew that having been a head chef, having worked for myself, I knew that no matter what I did there, I knew that I wouldn't have this thing of, I don't want to do this because the food shit, 
or I don't want to send that because it's not right. I knew I wouldn't have that barrier, so I knew I could go and be a sous chef. Not that I've got anything wrong, I'd go and be a chef to party tomorrow, I don't give a fuck. I'd go and be a comic, I'm not bothered. But if I'm going to do that, it's got to be credible because I know it's going to frustrate me. Uh, if I wasn't in control of it and it wasn't right, that would piss me off. And I knew that wasn't going to happen, and it didn't because everything was great, everything was fucking lovely, and the, the whole ethos was brilliant. So I kind of took this job there and did six months and helped them open burn and loved it and would have loved to stay, but it just completely made me realise I need to open my own restaurant because. I mean, Gary even said to me, like, what the fuck are you doing here? And I said, what do you mean? He went, why are you here? You know, you're sending fucking pate on larder or whatever and a bowl of soup. What, what, why don't you go and set your own place up? And I was like, well, I will, but I just want to, I don't mind coming and doing starters for you for six months to help out because, one, I want to be a part of it because I just love what he does and did. And two, it just gave me the, the complete rubber stamp and confidence to go, do you know what, I can do this because I love the way he does it. He's just so gung-ho. And we've done it with this restaurant, you know, we had two and a half thousand followers on Twitter before we had a site or a penny and I'd bought a hundred year old antique butcher's rail to hang the charcuterie from <laughs> a year a year ago and we're only up next week so you can see the, <laughs> the influence Gary's had on me in terms of just do it and just do it the way you think and it'll work out and it has it might not be the best way it might not be every person's way and it might not appear like it's organised and, and at certain extents it, it isn't you know I was stood painting the restaurant at 10 o'clock last night I don't want to do that but I will because I want it to be right and I need it to be finished but Gary's influence gave me that thing of you know you can just do it you can you don't have to don't have to be as organised as you think or it doesn't have to be in the traditional way just go and do it go and get it open and so he influenced me from a, a business perspective and he also just influenced me as a person because he's he's the greatest person I've worked for and that doesn't you know I'm not like looking in Looking his ass sort of and saying he's fucking amazing, but he, he, he's listening. His head's going to yeah. be like massive. <laughs> yeah, well, but he is. He's a great guy to work from, and he gives people opportunity, and he, he listens, and he's he's there on site. He's at the other end of a text, a phone, or a tweet, and he gives a fuck about you. And you know, I want to operate the way he's operated because he's got a credible place and he's got people who like working for him and that's just something to be said for that in an industry where it's well documented that it's quite hard to get staff or whatever and it's that makes it even more important to keep them doesn't it and, and I think uh, he's got a group of people there who would walk over hot coals for him and, and regularly probably do and, and that's that's something to be admired Talk to me about this dish then that you made at Sticky Walnut It was the dessert that Gary Top brought out uh, when I first ate at Sticky and sort of said, look, this is just a little extra. And they always they always really look after people in the industry there and that's what I really like. You know, you get some free bread, a free glass of Prosecco and a free dessert or whatever. And I think that's really nice to, to sort of look after other people in the industry and, and lots of restaurants do that, but lots of restaurants also don't. And I don't expect anything for free. No one should. And I don't certainly expect any special treatment, but it is bloody nice. And, you know, the, the ethos of this tart thing at Sticky is completely the ethos of their restaurants and, you know, they probably would make a lot more money if it wasn't, but it wouldn't be a better restaurant for it. And they make these fresh tarts, whether it's a custard tart, a hispy, or whatever, that's sticky. And it's a fresh raspberry frangipan tart, and I had it with clotted cream and raspberry sorbet. And, and it was just great, because it was fresh out of the oven. That day, if they don't sell it, it goes in the bin. And it's a better dish for it, but it was just lovely. Some relatively simple dessert, but perfect. Perfect pastry, everything about it, perfect. And I like the fact that you know, it was just served with clotted cream. It doesn't always have to be an ice cream or a sorbet. I know in this case it did have a sorbet with it as well, but, you know, not everything has to be messed with, and that's not being a chef, is it? It's just buying clotted cream, like I've said before. But it's knowing that you can do that and confidently do it, and it was just lovely. It's just a lovely, fresh, warm tart, straight out of the oven, and just a great, great dish. I imagined having someone who is, and obviously is opening up a new, or trying to open up a new place at the minute, I imagined having someone like that in your life probably helped you go in for opening up your, you know, first... Yeah, 100%. I think um, he's, a, he's a great person to know. He's very supportive. He, he doesn't keep anything to himself. If you if you need advice or need a recipe or whatever, he's there, and that's and that's a good thing. And, and I'm lucky that there's a couple of other people in the industry that I've also got that relationship with, which is nothing but helpful and supportive. I think one of those days are like a big secretive recipe book where you don't can tell anyone what it is or whatever. I think that's bullshit. So I, I respect Gary for sort of being so open and sharing with the industry. I think it's regularly seen on Twitter sort of flying recipes about the rice <laughs> which I like. It's good. Has this been the biggest challenge of your career so far? Probably, yeah, because I've, I've opened other restaurants for other people, but the only the restaurant I opened was just on a totally different scale. You know, I spent £2.2 million of someone else's money. 
and that was hard at the time when I was younger at the time but in reality it's a lot easier than this that's in Hull that's yeah. the, the dog kitchen yeah 1884 Dog Street Kitchen and um, because of my integrity I treat that as my own money but there is a difference between it being your own bosh there absolutely is and yeah but it's also your own vision and your own yeah. how you want to do it exactly and I think um, I know we've it's spoken it's such a roller coaster process it's, it is enjoyable people keep saying you're excited and I couldn't think of a worse way to describe it. I'm just very aware, and I'm very aware of what it's cost. I'm very aware that we've got to open in less than a week. I'm very aware that I'm employing a lot of people, considering it's a small restaurant. And I'm very aware that I just want to make sure it's really good and successful and credible and still there in three months. And, you know, people said, I mean, you said it to me to start into uh, off camera, what, what, um, what, where do you want to be in a year or whatever? And I said, literally not, not in Smalls Claims Court, in receivership. I don't want to be bankrupt. And that is the aim. That is the fucking only aim. I don't want to go bust. And then I'll have a look at what else to do. And, and I don't think it's a bad aim. You know, people, some people look at me like I'm weird for saying that, but I think it's probably the most important aim in business. You know, I think if you if you don't think about that, what you know, that's the most important thing to do because it's okay sort of thinking about what's on the lunch menu, but if we're not there in six months, there is no fucking lunch menu. Something I've asked everybody to do as we wrap up is if you don't don't need to go over all, all the different stories, but just one by one, tell me the titles of your dishes that you've come yep. up with today. You've poured over it, which I really love, and I really thank you for taking the time yeah, to think about your dishes. Um, and what I want you to do, if you can, is pick one dish, which is your most important dish of these five. Yeah. So the first dish was um, burrata with tomato, lamb's lettuce, and shaved black Italian summer truffle. Next dish is uh, curried scallops, cauliflower puree, tomato and villa chutney. That's from uh, Petrus when I worked there. My mum's roast beef for the main course, Sunday lunch, traditionally garnished with uh, my granddad's cucumber and white onion pickle. And then uh, the, the fourth dish on my cheese course is a Comte Grand Garde cheese with a shaved black Peugeot winter truffle from La Perge in France. And the uh, fifth and final dish for the dessert is a fresh raspberry frangipan tart from Sticky, walnut and chester with clotted cream and raspberry sorbet. And uh, 100% the favourite is, is, is the rib beef. It's got to be because of the occasion and the dish. And without fail, although this is going to change when the restaurant opens, me and my missus eat Sunday lunch every week. And it's the most important meal of our week. And it's where we catch up, have a glass of wine, enjoy ourselves, have friends over, have family over. It's the most, it, it's something that as British people or as any people, we should never lose that thing of eating around a table. Certainly, that dish as a dish to eat is the, my favourite meal, whether it's beef or any meat, Sunday lunch. And it's, you know, I always, even if it's just me and my missus, I serve it family style with all the veg in bowls and we pass it around and stuff, even if it's just us two, you know, and that's important because it just creates that atmosphere, that sharing atmosphere. And, and that's kind of what I want to ring through into the restaurant and what I enjoy about life and eating. So at the start of each episode, I have this pre-typed out introduction, which I bestowed on you all these great offers. I then like to completely on the top of my head wax lyrical about you and thank you at the end. So please bear with me. Yeah. I kind of get to know you over Twitter, which I've really enjoyed. And I've loved getting to know you more as a person. Obviously, we've shared numbers and we've had texts, we've had calls. I've really, really enjoyed getting to know you as a person. Thank you. What you're trying to open, I think, is fantastic. I think you've really onto something with your idea your vision sounds fantastic and i can't wait to eat there soon thank you and all i can say is i just wish you the best of luck and Thanks. thank you so much for your time i really appreciate and you've that. been a, a lovely guest on the past podcast thank you so much the past podcast is brought to you in association with great british chefs recipes hints tips and features on this year's great british menu sign up for the mailing list at greatbritishchefs.com I'm hoping to add some bonus content soon, so if you sign up to the mailing list, that'll be the best way for all your past podcast news.